Let's go to the Lord in prayer. As Grayson said just a moment ago, those aren't easy words to sing. Uh, that, that song is born out of the experience of Job. And after he had lost everything, he lost his home, he lost his family, he lost his health. He refused to curse God. He continued to hope in him. He continued to praise his name. And it's our reminder that to have Jesus and nothing else is still to have everything that we need. I don't want to let this just sit for for a moment this morning because I think there's a danger in just kind of rushing into the message. We're going to go into some hard places this morning. We talk about repentance. It's it's hard to come face to face with the magnitude of our sin. It's easy to just passively look over it. It's easy to suppress it. It's easy to minimize it. But what we're going to see this morning in Hosea 6 is that right on the other side of repentance is restoration. And so, Lord, we ask you this morning, bring us to a place of dependency. God, to help us see our need. To help us humble ourselves before you. To recognize our utter inability to overcome our sin and our own strength. And to wholly trust in you. God, we ask as we stand in the light of your word this morning, that you would shine the light of your spirit into the darkness of our lives and help us to deal honestly with what's there. Lord, remind us of the promise of your word, though, that where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. God, that where sin was great, your grace was greater. That though our sins are many, your mercy is more. So, Father, help us to see that in your word this morning. Speak to us through your word this morning. Sanctify us in the truth of your word because your word is true. We wish to see Jesus today. Help us to see him in your word. We ask all these things in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Everyone said. All right, you can go ahead and have a seat. Uh, Hosea chapter 6 will be in verses 1 through 3 um, together this morning. Um, if you uh, have a Bible, I want to invite you to go ahead and turn there. If you don't have a Bible, you can know that we always have uh, hardback Bibles available at the table as you come in. Um, so you can grab one of those uh, on your way in each week, or you can grab them on your way out um, as you're leaving today. That's our gift to you, no strings attached. So uh, Hosea chapter 6, we're going to be uh, spending most of our time there, but we're also at the beginning going to go back to Hosea chapter 1. So we just encourage you uh, to go back and to, uh, to have your thumb there. We're going to flip back and forth between those a little bit at the beginning of our time um, together. Um, back when I was a college student in 2013, um, I had, or excuse me, back in 2008, I got to go back even, even further than that. Um, I uh, had traveled away from school for the weekend. I was going to school up at Liberty in Virginia and uh, had gone down to Charlotte to go uh, to attend a conference with a group of friends. And um, on the way back to, uh, uh, to Lynchburg from that trip, um, I started feeling this aching in my lower right side, and, um, and I, I figured maybe it had just been something that I ate that wasn't settling with me, maybe food poisoning or something, but sure enough, uh, that pain continued. It increased um, as I went on um, throughout the course of that trip, and so I get home uh, to my apartment later that night. I just crashed on the couch as soon as I got there, and the pain just continued throughout the course of the evening. Um, just could really feel the sharp pain in my right side. And uh, this continued into Sunday. I was running fever. I couldn't keep any food down. I was trying to figure it out on my own, you know, just trying to take pain meds. Maybe I can make this thing go away. Uh, sure enough, Monday morning, it had not gone away and it got to the point that I really couldn't stand up straight and finally said, you know what? I should probably go to the hospital. Now, um, that was a big move for me because up to this point in time in my life, I had never been admitted to the hospital for anything. I'm 21 years old, very much thought of myself as invincible, and uh, I'm just going to handle this thing on my own. Um, So uh, that's what I was trying to do. But finally, I caved. I said, I I need to go get this checked out. And sure enough, I check in there at the ER. Shortly thereafter, I have a scan, and it is revealed that my appendix has basically exploded. And um, so going to have to have emergency surgery. And I remember the moment the doctor walked in, and he just told me, lectured me a little bit, and said, 
you know, you, you really shouldn't have waited this long to come here. And uh, I just joked, I said, well, you know, I tend to be kind of stubborn about these things. He goes, well, your stubbornness is about to kill you. So I'm going to take you back to surgery. And um, so I had emergency surgery that evening and had my appendix removed. And, you know, it's so ironic that the place I most needed to go was the place that I least wanted to go. The place that I needed to go to for healing was the place that I was most trying to avoid. And there were a lot of reasons for that. A lot of it was pride. Never had to be admitted to the hospital for anything else, and I don't think that I need to now, so I think I can figure this out and handle this on my own. Um, some of my problem had to do with doubts. I was worried that uh, maybe they wouldn't be able to have a solution for me. So I'm a broke college student. I wasn't trying to get hit with a, an expensive ER bill, and so my fear was, well, what if I go? I'm in this obvious pain, but then they tell me everything's fine, and I leave this place today in worse condition than I was when I first came in the door. Um, another piece of this was a little bit of guilt and shame. It was wondering, man, did I do something wrong? Uh, have I not been treating my body the right way? Am, am I the one that brought this upon myself? I wasn't really wanting to hear that lecture, to hear that hard news from the doctor, but eventually I caved and I found myself having to go. And you know, when you and I get into places where we fall into sin, when we fall away from God's word, when we fall away from his plan and from his purpose in our lives, the person that we most need to go to is sometimes the person that we least want to go to. And that person's Jesus. And a, a lot of the reason for this is the same reasons why I didn't want to go in the hospital. There's a lot of pride. We want to minimize and suppress the reality of our sinful condition. We want to pretend that things aren't quite as bad as they actually are. And so uh, we uh, say, hey, I can handle this on my own. I don't think I need anybody else coming alongside me. Some of it is doubt. We don't think we're going to be able to find in Jesus, we don't think we're going to be able to find in the church what we most need. And what that's going to result in is, is us maybe leaving in worse condition than we found ourselves checking in to begin with. Some of it is guilt and shame. This is the game that Satan plays with us, is that he racks us with grief and guilt and shame over our sins, and he wants to tell us God no longer wants you. The church will not welcome you. And unfortunately, sometimes that has been the message and those become deterrents from those who need to come to the place of healing. But what we're going to see as we open up Hosea chapter 6 today is, is a little bit of, of an irony, is that in the same way a, a good physician, a surgeon had to cut me so that I could be healed, we see from God's word that he wounds us to heal us that he breaks us down in order to bind us up, in order to bring healing and restoration into our lives. It, uh, Dane Ortland has a really great book called Gentle and Lowly. We gave out a couple hundred copies of this last year. I know many of you have read this. And I love these words from Gentle and Lowly. He said, we cannot present a reason for Christ to finally close off his heart to his own sheep. No such reason exists. Every human friend has a limit. If we offend enough, if a relationship gets damaged enough, if we betray enough times, we are cast out. The walls go up. With Christ, our sins and weaknesses are the very resume items that qualify us to approach him. Now, my illness did not disqualify me from being admitted to the hospital. As a matter of fact, that's what qualified me for admission. Hospitals these days aren't just giving out beds because you want to go on vacation and need a place to stay, right? especially right now as they're inundated. It's like, you better have a pretty big need if you're coming here. And, and that scar that I have 14 years later, it's the reminder not just of my hurting, it's the reminder of my healing. And in the same way, the Lord invites us in his kindness, in the midst of our sin, in the middle of our messiness, in the middle of our brokenness, this is what qualifies us to come into his presence. This is the good news about our Savior. He prefers that we show up to the table empty-handed because he wants to provide everything that we need. And he is everything that we need. He is the good host that you show up and bring nothing but your nothing. This is the good news of the gospel is that all that you need to come to Jesus Christ is your need. He prefers that we show up empty-handed and he invites us all the more into his presence. So you know, this morning we're, we're jumping right in midstream to the book of Hosea. This is not a, a part of any message series. This is just a standalone message that um, I hope in many ways sets the trajectory for our church family in the year ahead. And so what we need to do is, is give a little bit of context about what's going on by the time we get to chapter 6. Um, we know uh, that Hosea is the first of what are known as the minor prophets. So if you're not familiar, the prophets of the Old Testament, their books are divided into two categories of major prophets and minor prophets. 
Minor does not mean less important, even if we might treat them that way because we don't read their words as much. Um, They're not called the minor prophets because their messages are less important. They're called the minor prophets because their books are shorter. Um, So uh, uh, Isaiah, you know, by comparison has 66 chapters. Hosea only has 14. It was Hosea along with Amos and Micah were really the elder of the minor prophets. They were ministering around the 8th century BC. And this was a couple hundred years after the death of Solomon, King David's son. After uh, Solomon's reign, the kingdom splits into the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah. And Hosea's ministry took place primarily in the northern kingdom. It was a, a really turbulent point in their history. God's people had fallen into wickedness and rebellion. And while you and I tend to think of the work of the prophets, work of prophecy, um, as, as a foretelling of future events, that wasn't the primary aim of the Old Testament prophets. There certainly was a foretelling of things to come, particularly the coming of Jesus and his kingdom. Uh, but uh, the main work of the prophets was calling the people back into the covenant relationship that God had made with them. So we see the promises of the covenant in the book of Exodus after the people had been freed from their bondage and slavery. We see this uh, through the sermon of Moses. That's really what the book of Deuteronomy is, is one long sermon where the, the conditions of this covenant are spelled out. And it's pretty simple. God says, uh, I have delivered you from uh, the bondage of slavery. I have led you out. I, I'm going prom- to provide for you. I'm going to protect you. I'm going to preserve you if you walk in obedience to my word. If you walk in my ways, if you keep my ways before you, I'll prosper you, I'll protect you, and I'll preserve you. But then the contrast was also true. But if you turn your back on me, if you worship the gods of the foreign nations, if you uh, double down on your sin and you don't walk in the way of my word, I will invite you to repent and come back to me. But if you don't and you still stubbornly refuse, then you're going to be conquered by the nations. So this is what the term, these are the terms that have been agreed to between God and the people. And the people had joyfully accepted this. They joyfully entered in to this covenant agreement. So you you ask the question, you know, uh, why do I need to read my Old Testament? Many of us are trying to read through the Bible this year. You're going to read through the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, and oftentimes going to say, what does this have to do with me? Well, uh, the book of Deuteronomy is important because when you're reading the book of Isaiah, when you're reading the book of Hosea, they are calling the people back to the book of Deuteronomy. When they talk about justice, when they talk about morality, they're calling the people back to the standard that was laid out in that covenant. So uh, it's a Bible reading tip. As you're reading the prophets, keep your thumb in the book of Deuteronomy because that's the standard they're calling them back to. So this is the work of Hosea. He is calling people back to the covenant agreement that they had made together with the Lord. And the way the Lord gave Hosea to illustrate the covenant to his people and the nature of their relationship and the condition of their relationship was really, really weird. I want you to turn with me in your Bible for just a second, Hosea chapter 1. We're going to read together verses 2 through 9. Now, um, this is a little bit of the uh, parental guidance suggested warning ahead of reading these scriptures, okay? In just a second, I'm going to read the Bible. That's all I'm doing is reading the Bible. I'm not trying to be rude. I'm not trying to be crass. I'm not trying to be funny. I'm not trying to be inappropriate. I'm just reading to you the word of God. Uh, The book of Hosea is one of the most graphic and visceral depictions of uh, God's fractured relationship with his people that we get in all of the Bible. So the language that we find here in verses two through nine is is pretty intense. Let's read this together. Hosea chapter one, verse two. It says, when the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea. So understand, this is the word of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord for his people. This is not the rantings and ravings and ramblings of some crazed, angry prophet. This is the word of God for Hosea, for the people that he's going to speak through him. He says this, Go take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom. For the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, call his name Jezreel. For in just a little while, I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day, I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. Then she conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, call her name no mercy. For I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. 
When she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, call his name, not my people. For you are not my people, and I am not your God. So the makeup of Hosea's family here in the first uh, chapter of the book really sets up the foundation for the rest of the book. His family paints a very bleak picture, and this is the picture we receive. God is the loving, faithful husband, and Israel is his cheating, adulterous wife. God is the loving father, and his people are his stubborn, rebellious children. In Hosea chapter 3, we see that uh, Hosea's wife once again commits adultery against him, but the instruction of the Lord is this, go and buy her back. And in doing this, the Lord was demonstrating through Hosea his relentless and fierce devotion to his bride, to his people, in spite of her sinful wickedness and rebellion and adultery against him. Church, here is the message that we see from, the message, from Hosea this morning. It's that regardless of the depth of our sins, the Lord invites us to him to find healing, restoring grace. That's good news, amen? No matter how far we have fallen into wickedness, no matter how far we have fallen into rebellion against God, he invites us to return to him and to find healing, restoring grace in the power of his name. So from Hosea chapter six, this is what Blaine read for us earlier. We're gonna read it again one more time. Let's read together verses one through three. So in spite of their sin, in spite of their rebellion, in spite of their wickedness, in spite of the judgment that has been pronounced against them, here comes the invitation of the Lord through Hosea. Come, let us return to the Lord for he has torn us, why? That he may heal us. He has struck us down and he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live before him. Let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is as sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. So here's the invitation that we see that God extends to his people. Let us return to the Lord. And we see first this morning that returning to the Lord means that we humbly submit to his loving, gracious discipline. Again, when God made the covenant with his people in Exodus and Deuteronomy, it was pretty straightforward. If they walked before him in obedience, they would be blessed. If they turned their backs on him in rebellion, they would be cursed. In spite of their rebellion, if they repented of their sins and returned to them, he would restore them. But in their stubbornness, if they refused, they'd be conquered by the nations. You know, it's, it's really easy to look at a passage like this and to look at the message of the Old Testament prophets and oftentimes see the condition of God's people. And with our modern sensibilities, we look at that and say, gosh, that sounds very harsh. Doesn't sound like God's very loving at all. He's punishing his own children. This sounds vindictive. That this sounds like God has, has maybe some anger issues that he needs to deal with and get some counseling for. Like, this doesn't seem very loving. This doesn't seem very gracious at all. But church, remember, this was the covenant that the people had agreed to. It was not God who was being unfaithful to the covenant. It was the people who were being unfaithful to the covenant that they had made with the Lord. God is simply holding up his end of the deal. And he has to. For God to be God, he has to be faithful to do everything that he has said he will do, or he is a sinner and he cannot be God. He's calling them back to the covenant agreement that they had already made. This is God simply being God. So verse 1, Hosea in humility, he cries out, let us return to the Lord. I love this. I love this because Hosea does not exempt himself from the need for repentance. He's not preaching at the people. He's preaching with the people. He says, hey, th this message is just as much for me as it is for all of you. Let us return to the Lord. He does not exempt himself from the sins of the people or the need for repentance. He calls the people to collectively acknowledge their sins and their sins were many. You turn back just a couple of pages uh, to Hosea chapter 4 read together verses one and two, and this gives us an idea of the types of sins that were prevalent in the nation. Hosea 4 verses one and two. It says, hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel. For the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There's no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. There's swearing, lying, murder, stealing, and committing adultery. They break all bounds, and bloodshed follows bloodshed. 
So you could really summarize the sins of the people in, pretty four, in four pretty broad categories here. There were sins of immorality. We're told there was swearing. There was lying. There was murder. There was stealing. There was committing adultery. We're told that there were sins of injustice. It said that bloodshed followed bloodshed. We also know from the words of the prophet Amos that the people were neglecting the poor and suffering who were around them. They were perfectly content to live in affluence, perfectly content to live lives of comfort, completely indifferent to the suffering that surrounded them. There were sins of idolatry. We learn from Hosea 11 that there was the worship of false gods. There was uh, the offering of incense to idols. We know that the kings ran to Egypt or to Assyria at times of need for help instead of running to the Lord. And that the priests didn't just tolerate sin, they celebrated sin. And all of this is uh, caused by one single root sin, and it's the sin of ignorance. Go on from Hosea, down to Hosea chapter 4, verse 6. The Lord speaks to the prophet, My people perish for lack of knowledge. There was a famine of the word of God. There was negligence of the word of God because people had departed from the word of God. They fell into a host and legion of other sins. Hosea laments in Hosea chapter 9, verse 7, that uh, the people considered the prophets to be fools. They thought they were madmen. They didn't just reject the messengers. They rejected the message that was being delivered uh, through them from the Lord. And, And church, I think it's easy for us to see the relevance of this today. It's not just in our world, not just in our culture, it's, it's within the church even. We see that these words from the Lord through Hosea, these, these weren't being spoken to a, a lost world that had rejected God. These were the people of God who claimed to belong to him. And yet within the church even today, we see many of these sins continuing to persist. We have the same sins of immorality, of swearing, of, li- of lying. We, we, it's, it's, it just continually grieves my heart how effortlessly and easily we, even as followers of Jesus Christ, can just gossip and slander, assassinate people's character, throw them under the bus when they're not around to defend themselves. It's so easy to, to tolerate these things and, and think of them as lesser sins even within the body of Christ. Sexual immorality just continues to infiltrate the church. We see a total disregard from this world for sex as a good gift given by a loving God to be enjoyed only and only by a husband and a wife within the covenant of marriage. It's a sexual revolution without any boundary whatsoever. We see porn, even within the body of Christ, just continue to destroy men, destroy women, destroy homes, destroy lives, and destroy a teenager's understanding and perception of what sex is before they even are close to ready to enjoy it for what it is. We see these things continue to infiltrate the body of Christ. There's injustice that exists and persists in our nation. It breaks my heart. It feels like with every passing decade, there are are fewer and fewer followers of Jesus who are willing to say anything about the modern-day holocaust of abortion. We have found every reason to not talk about this. We have subjected that wicked practice to experience and to emotion and to feelings, but but sadly, even within the body of Christ, for many of us who have sought to be pro-life and protecting life in the womb, we we hardly or seldom do anything for uh, the woman that is required to carry this child. And we don't do as much as the body of Christ to come around to make sure that that uh, that that mother and this child have what they need to flourish. We have uh, minority brothers and sisters in Christ who who are are continually crying uh, out about their struggle within the church. And very frequently, they're met with a wall. They're met with a chorus of voices who want to tell them that their pain is not real and their experience is imagined. We just overlook these things. We see that there are sins of idolatry. Listen, you, you might not bow to a little wooden statue, but all of us are prone to have things that are uppermost in our affections. Now, I've heard it said that an idol is whatever it is you run to during a time of need. Whatever you run to in stress, whatever you run to in anxiety, that's your true God. We can be guilty of the same sins of idolatry, of of letting other things be preeminent in our affections above the name and person of Jesus Christ. And the root sin underneath it all is ignorance. We perish for a lack of knowledge. Even within the body of Christ, man, it just grieves my heart. It feels like every single year there's a new denomination, there's a new church, there's a new leader who has completely forsaken the faithful preaching of God's word. That there are, there are churches that have forsaken the preaching of God's word just to address uh, pop psychology felt needs in the moments, never rooting them in the word of God, chasing superficial experiences that are based almost exclusively in emotion and none whatsoever of what God prescribes in his word. It's so easy for, for us to drift and depart 
from these. And listen, church, we need to understand whether you realize it or not, you're being influenced by this. And in many ways, the church is being influenced by this. This is the world that you're living in right now. You're living in a world that wants you to think that disagreement is hatred, that truth is bigotry, that boundaries are harmful, that standards are oppression, and that repentance is a betrayal of your true self. That's what we're living in right now. And we perish because of a lack of knowledge. We perish because of a lack of understanding of the word of God. And listen, we, we have to wear this. We have to own this. Without question, some of this is the fault of the church. The church is meant to be the hospital for the broken. It, it's meant to be the place where people should run to when they're at their absolute worst. We forget that our Jesus is a friend of sinners, that people looked at who he hung out with and said, what? And were repulsed by it. And instead of the church being a place where people run to when they're overwhelmed with guilt and shame and their sin, it's the place they run from because the history has taught them that instead of being welcomed with open arms, being lavished with the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ, the same grace that he's lavished on us, they're often shunned with condemnation and guilt. And as hard as repentance is, what we see in Hosea chapter six, friends, is that his repentance is not meant to harm us. It's meant to heal us. Look at a few passages of scripture here that help us see this. This is Proverbs 3, 11 and 12. It reminds us, my son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. Why? For the Lord reproves him whom he loves. How? As a father, the son in whom he delights. Teenagers, kids in the room, you know why your parents discipline you? It's because they love you. It doesn't feel that way, does it? Not in the moment. Feels like they're trying to keep you from happiness. Feels like they're trying to keep you from joy. No, it's because they love you. We don't look at parents who refuse to firmly and fairly discipline their children and say, hey, they really love those kids. As a matter of fact, we, we think they don't really love their kids because we refuse to, to speak correction into their lives at the times that they need it the most. Romans 2 verses 4 and 5, that it reminds us it is God's kindness that leads us to repentance. I mean, think about this, like what else could it possibly be? We sin again and again and again. We make 10,000 promises to the Lord. I'll never do that again. And then Monday morning, we do it again. And every single time he keeps finding us in his grace, what else could it be but kindness that we will time and time again, as the proverb says, return to our folly like a dog returns to its vomit. Over and over and over, we go back, we go back, we go back. What else could it be but God's kindness that he still invites us to repent and return to him? Proverbs 27 verses five through six tells us, better is open rebuke than hidden love. I love this. Faithful are the wounds, what's that say? Of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Yeah, I think we struggle with a verse like this because we're living in a time where we have, I think, a very skewed concept culturally of what friendship is. And the messaging right now is to be my friend means that you exist to uncritically affirm everything about me. You got to affirm my lifestyle. You got to affirm my decisions. You got to affirm my desires. You got to affirm my behaviors, even if those behaviors are self destructive and leading me down a deadly path, even within the body of Christ. Like, we don't want people speaking to us about our sin. That's none of your business. Don't speak that to me. We'll, we'll jump to, uh, to modern language. Hey, that, those are toxic people. I need to cut them out of my life. And we're, we're just not willing to, to receive the, the, the critical feedback. We're not willing to see the, the faithful wound of the friend who loves us so much that they want to speak truth into our lives. Listen, I, I would just challenge you this morning, if you're the type of person saying that I'm not going to have people in my life who speaks hard truth to me, you're not looking for friends, you're looking for slaves. That's not real friendship. True friends, God's word tells us, they don't kiss our sin, they help us kill our sin. They love us enough to see what's leading us away from Jesus, and then they fight like crazy to bring us back. That's what true friendship is. Listen, if you don't get anything else this morning, I hope you will get this one single thing. Jesus doesn't call you to repentance because he's your foe who wants to kill you. Jesus calls you to repentance because he's your friend who wants to heal you. 
It is his kindness that leads us to repentance. He disciplines us because he loves us. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. And Jesus invites us to repent because he is our closest friend. Hosea goes on to proclaim the word of the Lord. Verse 2. It says, after two days, he will revive us. This is the result of our repentance. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live before him. So there it is. God's invitation to repentance is not because he's seeking to kill you, but because he's seeking to show his kindness to you. That you may live before him. That you may be forgiven before him and justified before him and declared innocent before him. This is what he's inviting us to. So we return to the Lord by submitting to his loving, gracious discipline. Second, we see this morning that we can be confident he will honor his promise to revive. We submit to the Lord's loving, gracious discipline, and we can be confident that he's going to honor his promise to revive. Now, if you um, uh, look at the, the life of a reptile, think of like a snake. Snakes can be most aggressive when they're going through the process of shedding their skin. It's an important process. It's a necessary process. If they don't shed their entire skin, it can lead to serious health problems. Ultimately, it can kill them. And so it's, it's an uncomfortable, but it's a necessary process uh, that they're required to go to. And, and listen, here's the reality that I think most of us know. Repentance, it's not comfortable. It's not easy. But we, we look at the promise of God's word this morning and we see what is waiting on the other side of the discomfort of repentance is revival. Revival is what's waiting on the other side of repentance. This is what's coming. It's our healing. It's our growth. It's our nourishing in Christ. And this is what the Lord invites us into. Uh, George Schwab, in his commentary in the book of Hosea, has noted that the language after two days and on the third day is a common poetic device that's used in Hebrew literature. You see this several other places throughout the Old Testament. Um, the presence of this does not necessarily refer to three literal days. By saying uh, two days and then on the third day uh, really could be a way of just showing something that they could expect to happen quickly. And so the, the picture that we get here is that if we will return to the Lord, if we will come to him in repentance, we'll find immediate healing. You come to him on the second day, healed by the third day. That's the picture that we see from these verses. And it's amazing, you know, as you, you think about this story, it seems to be setting itself up for like a picture-perfect revival, right? I mean, God's people have fallen into rebellion. They have fallen into wickedness. They have fallen into sin. They have turned their backs on him. But the Lord, in his kindness and his mercy, he comes for them. And he raises up the prophet and he speaks his word through them. And this beautiful invitation, let us return to the Lord. He's torn us that he may heal us. He's broken us down that he may bind us up. He will raise us up. He'll come to us like the dawn. He'll come to us like the rain. Surely the people heard all that and said, yes, let us return to the Lord. Let's come away from our sins. Let's turn back to our God in whom we will find our everything. That's what happens, right? It doesn't. That's not what happens at all. It's sad as we continue to read the book of Hosea, what we find is that the Lord did not accept the, his the people did not accept the Lord's invitation to repent. They didn't turn. And eventually the Lord was faithful to the covenant. They were carried away by the nations. They were carried into captivity. Now, we know from our study about this time last year of the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, eventually they did return to their home. So there was a day when they would be raised up. But I, I don't believe this passage is just foreshadowing the death and resurrection of a nation. I think this passage foreshadows the death and resurrection of a Savior. There was another who went down for a couple of days, but on the third was raised up. And listen, it is the resurrection of Jesus Christ that makes our repentance possible. It is because God in his kindness, in spite of our sins, sent his son, Jesus, to do what we could never do, which is to live a life of total, complete, sinless perfection. Does that not still blow your mind, Christian, that Jesus never sinned? Like, if you're like me, man, I, I don't make it out of bed in the morning, right? It's just, it's so easy for our minds to wonder, for our hearts to wonder, for, for our emotions to wonder. And Jesus, like, he, he never wandered into sin. Never once. Lived the perfectly sinless life we couldn't live. He takes our place in death. He is nailed to the cross. He dies the death that you and I deserve. He overcomes the grave. 
And the fact that Jesus overcame the grave, that is the reminder for us that he can overcome our sins. This passage was not just about a death and resurrection of a nation. It was about the death and the resurrection of a Savior who would invite all people, not just a nation, but globally all people to call on his name and repentance and be saved. And if Jesus Christ can overcome the grave, that means he can overcome your sin. That's the confidence that we have in him. If he can walk out of the tomb, then surely he can overcome any sin that's in our lives. Church, I think we need to understand this morning, uh, we cannot manipulate God. We can't manufacture a movement of the Holy Spirit. Many churches try it today. Right lighting and right sound and right smoke. You can do it. You can get people emotional. I, was, I used to be a worship leader. It's easy to do. I'll just be real with you. Is there's a lot of ways that I think we try to manufacture this state. You can't manufacture revival. It can't happen this way. It doesn't happen by any means or method of man. I think we need to understand that we, we cannot move God's hand. Like We, we cannot uh, uh, control his plan. It is God and God alone who can pour out revival on his people. It is the spirit who comes and goes as he pleases. He comes and goes like the wind. And we can't control this. We can't manufacture this. But this is what we do know as we study the word of God and as we study the history of his people. For there to be revival, there first has to be repentance. And the absence of repentance will always mean the absence of true revival. Now talk to followers of Jesus, and you've probably had some of these same conversations I don't know a single professing follower of Jesus who's not interested in revival. Like, I don't know a single follower of Jesus that you talk to them about uh, the outpouring of God's spirit upon his people, the moving of God's spirit, the, the building of the church, the advancement of the gospel and the good news of the kingdom at a widespread scale, uh, locally, domestically, globally. I don't know any Christian that says, I'm not really interested in that. I think we're good just the way that we are, but, but I do wonder if we always know what we mean by this word revival. If you grew up in a tradition like I did, uh, every single year we had a special week of the year, and what did we call that week? Revival, right? And, and this is what I remember about a lot of what we called revival weeks. A lot of crying, a lot of people cried, which I'm not trying to discount that. I, I do believe that genuine repentance will, pr will produce tears. Uh, I remember that uh, we came together for church like every single night of the week for a week, which as a kid didn't think that was very cool. Like I see now, like, okay, like that could be a good indication. Hebrews 10, let us gather together all the more as we see the day of the Lord drawing near. And I remember that the church building was packed every single night. I mean, just wall-to-wall -wall people. You had people you hadn't seen in a long time, people who had never been in the church before. And it was just, just packed out. But, but I worry that sometimes we look at the effects of revival and we mistake it for revival. Church, this is what we need to understand this morning. Revival does not happen when people return to the church. Revival is what happens when the church returns to Christ. Revival doesn't happen by a bunch of people just coming to a building. Revival happens when, no matter how many people it is, whether it's five or 500 or 50,000, when they get on their knees and they deal honestly with their sin when they return to the Lord, when they confess openly and honestly the fullness of their sin and they turn from their sin and they lay hold of the perfect righteousness that's been given to us in Jesus Christ. That's the evidence of true revival. There's nothing superficial about it. It's an internal work that, that oftentimes I think we mistake for lots of external appearances. It can be possible, and this is something we have to be tuned into. It can be possible to have a large emotional experience. It can be possible to have a week full of services. It can be possible to have a church building packed full of people and it not at all be a movement of God if there's no true repentance. All of it is man-made and superficial without the presence of active repentance among the people of God. So what do we do? We come to the Lord in repentance we ask him to break us of our sins and then we plead and we pray to him and we ask along with the psalmist, will you not revive us again? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. He tears us so he can heal us. He strikes us down to bind us up. We repent and he raises us up. And this is the promise that this is now the exhortation uh, on the heels of the promise, verse 3, the Lord speaks to Hosea, let us know.
let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is as sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. So third this morning, we see that as we return to the Lord, it means that we press on to know him as we await his coming. Hosea chapter 4, again, the indictment came, my people perish for lack of knowledge. So what does the Lord speak through Hosea? It's to press on to know. If they're perishing for lack of knowledge, then the exhortation is press on in the knowledge of God. And and the Lord promises through Hosea, he says that his going out is as sure as the dawn. I love this. That this is the Lord saying like, hey, as surely as the sun will rise tomorrow, I will come to you. Press on to know me and I will come to you. At this time and in this context, the people had put their hopes in the false God to be the provider of rain. So what does Hosea say the Lord will do? He will come to you like the rain to refresh and to restore and to renew. How are we pressing on to know the Lord? I'm going to challenge you with that question this morning. How are you pressing on to know the Lord in the year ahead? A lot of this is going to be our community group discussion this week. How are you pressing on to know him in his word? How are you pressing on to know him in prayer? How are you pressing on to know him through the disciplines of of silence and Sabbath and solitude? How are you pressing on in the memorization and the meditation upon his word? How are you pressing on to know him in the gathering and the fellowship and the service of the people of God? We're going to talk a lot about that in groups this week, but I really want to key in on the first and most important piece of pressing to know him, and it's the invitation to repent. Please hear me when I tell you this this morning. I know it's a new year. A lot of us have a lot of resolutions. We want to know God's word. We want to pray more. We want to serve more. We want to give more. We want to do more, more, more. But here's what you need to come to grips with this morning. It doesn't matter how much Bible you're reading, how much you're praying, how much you're giving, how much you're serving, how much you're pursuing the Lord and the spiritual disciplines. None of that matters, friends, if we will not deal honestly with our sins until we deal with the sins in our hearts, until we deal, husbands and wives, with the sins in our marriage and in the sins in our home, until we deal, honestly, with the sins of the church. We, we, we are so eager to sing out, so many of us, God bless America. Far few of us, I think, are eager to pray, God break America. Bring us to repentance. Bring us to our knees. Without repentance, we have absolutely no claim on God's blessing or provision. We have to deal honestly with our sin. Without repentance, there is no revival. Everybody wants a resurrection. Far fewer people want to go through a crucifixion. And yet Jesus said that is the path to life, to deny ourselves, to take up our crosses, and to follow him. We have to be people who are willing to deal honestly with our our sin. And, And this is my fear with a message like this. This is why I want to press into this for just a moment. You and I, if we're not really careful, we oftentimes equate the feeling of conviction with the action of repentance. We can, we can be very, very vulnerable and susceptible to this, of equating a feeling of conviction with the action of repentance, but these are not one and the same. John Stott has a great little book called Basic Christianity. Again, if you're just really wanting to explore the foundational basics of the Christian faith, this is a book I would absolutely commend to you. And this is what he has to say about repentance. He says, repentance is the first part of Christian conversion. It can in no circumstances be bypassed. Repentance and faith belong together. We cannot follow Christ without forsaking sin. Repentance is a definite turn. Everybody say turn. This is what true repentance is. It's a definite turn from every thought, word, deed, and habit which is known to be wrong. It is not sufficient to feel pangs of remorse or make some kind of apology to God. That's why we have to be careful about putting uh, too much in the bank of emotion. It's not that repentance won't be emotional, but being emotional does not necessarily mean that there has been true repentance. It's an inward change of mind and attitude towards sin which leads to a change of behavior. The Lord had promised his people through Hosea. Return to me and I will come to you like the dawn. Come to me and I will come to you like the rain. 
It's not just a feeling of conviction, it's actual action. We have agreed with God regarding our sinful nature and actions. And we have resolved by his grace and the power of the Holy Spirit to turn from our sins and to walk in the way that he's laid out for us in his word. And to walk according to the word that he's laid out for us. As Jesus says, if we love him, we will keep his commandments. That that's not a, a guilt trip of, hey, if you really love me, you'll do this for me. No, the heart that is truly in love with God has no choice. It will keep his commandments. God, by the power of his spirit, will accomplish that through you. The promise is his repentance is not meant to harm us, meant to heal us. He'll come to us like the dawn. He'll come to us like the rain. Um, our family, like probably many of your families, we are a real Christmas tree family. Can I get an amen from, from my brothers and sisters? I saw a tweet a couple months ago that said, fake trees are the real war on Christmas, and I wholeheartedly agree. Grew up in Christmas tree uh, country, mountains of North Carolina, so we get a real tree in our home. And you know if you get real Christmas trees that uh, once a tree's been cut and if it's not been in water, for, if it doesn't pretty much immediately go into water, what happens is all the sap starts to dam up at the bottom of the tree. So when you get a, a real tree, you've got to cut the bottom of it off. Uh, otherwise, the tree won't drink water. Well, rookie mistake. Um, apparently, the tree we got this past year had been out of water a lot longer than we thought um, because even after I cut off a few trees, I noticed after a couple of days, it wouldn't drink water. And um, there's really only one solution to this. I mean, at this point in time, there's lights on the tree and it's been decorated and uh, you pretty much have to take the tree down, cut off a little bit more. Um, we decided there's no chance that's going to happen. So we just prayed for a little Christmas miracle that our tree would survive the next few weeks. By God's grace, it barely did. Got to Christmas morning and the branches, they were dry, they were brittle. I mean, it's like an icicle. You could just break them off the end. And we didn't want to end up on CNN where, you know, like the houses that catch on fire because of dry Christmas trees. And so pretty much the day after Christmas, we, we stripped the tree down and we took it outside to become bonfire material that sat there for over a week. And then last week we had this massive rain. And, and I went outside and I noticed uh, that this tree, which in my eyes had died, was turning brown, what was going to be bonfire material. That tree, once again, was turning green. Those branches were no longer brittle. They, they were now very tender. And the needles didn't just fall off whenever I grabbed the branches. No, they, they stayed on, and they were growing strong once again. Friend, two, two things that I want us to hear from this this morning. Two things I want us to hear. Until you fully, completely, with your whole heart, allow the good physician to cut out your sin, you will not be able to drink fully of the living water that is Jesus Christ. But here's the promise this morning for us, is that if you are in Christ, you feel dead and you feel dry, you feel overwhelmed, you have dressed yourself up with superficial religion to cover all of this, the promise is if you will strip off everything that's superficial, everything external, everything that you're hiding behind for strength, and you come to him, you lay before him dead and dry and decaying, here's the promise. He will come to you like the rain to restore and to renew and to refresh. Here's the sad reality for us today, church. We are all Hosea's wife. We have committed adultery against the loving, faithful husband, Jesus Christ. Some of us, time and time again, we have willingly sold ourselves back into it. We have given ourselves over to be ravaged by the pleasures of this world. But Jesus is a good, loving, faithful husband who will not forsake his covenant, who is relentlessly and fiercely devoted to his bride, if you belong to Christ, hear me this morning, if you belong to Christ, he has paid for you at the cost of his own blood and never once, not for one second, has he ever gotten buyer's remorse. Jesus is not sorry that he saved you. He doesn't look at you with regret. He invites you once again, return to me. His coming to you will be as sure as the rising of the sun. He will refresh you and he will restore you like the coming of the rain. Sins, many. Grace, more. One of my favorite hymns goes like this. Man of sorrows, what a name for the son of man who came. And I love this. Ruined 
sinners to reclaim to the what's the chorus that we sing hallelujah what a savior what a savior so fathers we come to you this morning we ask that we would be able to come to you humbly to deal honestly with our sin to deal honestly with anything in us that is not of you trusting in the promise that if we come to you, your healing will come to us. Regardless of the depth of our sin, we are never outside the reaches of your mercy and your grace. That you invite us into covenant relationship with you and that even when we slip and we stumble and we fall, you relentlessly pursue us. You are the loving husband who doesn't just come to buy us back but has purchased us irrevocably and promised that we will never be lost. We give two really simple invitations to us this morning. For some, it's you can't return to the Lord because you've not yet come to the Lord. And this morning, he invites you into this loving covenant relationship with him. One where he will never leave you, he will never forsake you. He stands ready to redeem you and to forgive you. And today, the invitation for you is to repent, to turn from your sins. And yes, that's hard work. But it's not intended to harm you, it's meant to heal you. It's God leading you there in his kindness. It's the the loving father who's firmly but fairly disciplining his child. It's the faithful wounding of a friend who wants to heal you and not a foe who wants to kill you. And today, you can in faith call on the name of Jesus Christ repent of your sins and be saved. Put your faith and your confidence in his perfect life, death, and resurrection. For others today, you are in Christ, but you feel dead and you feel dry, consumed and broken by this world. And the promise is that if you will press on to know him, he will come to you like the rain. So that's, that's you this morning, that this is what we're going to do. I'm not going to ask you to stand up. I'm not going to ask you to walk an aisle or move anywhere. All of our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed. This is really just between you and the Lord and me right now. If you're in either one of those places today of desiring to come to the Lord or desiring to return to the Lord, if that's you today, would you just slip up your hand across this room? Man, praise God for that. Praise God. And listen, I'm, I'm going to give this to you this morning. In just a moment, we're going to come to the table for communion. And, and I just challenge you this morning, if that's you, you slipped up your hand. Our prayer team is available in the back of the room. We have men and women who are standing uh, lying across the back of the room. They've got green lanyards. Let them pray for you in this. We find forgiveness and repentance, but the book of James reminds us that we are to confess our sins to one another and pray for one another. Why? That we may be healed. There's healing to be found in confession, receiving prayer, with a brother or sister in the Lord. There's no shame in that. There's no embarrassment in that. We all need this. If that's you this morning, if you slip up your hand, I just want to challenge you as we come to the table for communion that you might go uh, meet with a brother or sister in the Lord who will pray for you for just a moment. So fathers, we, we come to you in worship this morning in response and repentance. Help the good news of the gospel fall fresh in our hearts again. Help us to come to you confident that you will come to us, that you have come to us that you will come to us again and help this good news to fall fresh in our hearts now. We ask all this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And everyone said, amen.